even if you have a bride that you know emails you or drops you a DM off of Instagram that's a higher end bride, she's like, hey, love your work. As soon as she hires that wedding planner, that wedding planner is incentivized because they want to work with their friends. They want to work with the teams that they like and enjoy and know they're going to get good stuff out of. So even if you've got a bride or groom that's really interested in you, as soon as they hire that wedding planner, that wedding planner is going to push her preferred vendors. Really breaking out of that middle market is really breaking out of your current referral source because you can't depend on your past brides to bring you high level weddings. That's just not how it works. Like brides are gonna refer like brides. So if you've got a couple who's spending hundred grand, most of their friends for the most part also are gonna have roughly that same budget. That was a snippet from today's episode. Welcome to the Wedding Video Boss Podcast where we talk about the business of being a wedding creative and also a peek into my world as a wedding videographer. I'm your host, Paul Santiago, and today is Monday, which means it's time for another masterclass. So bring out your notepad, pen, tablet, your quill, or whatever you use to take notes because you're not going to want to miss this one. I always say that, don't I? Your instructor for today is Brian Leahy, and he's here to talk about what it takes to be in the luxury and destination wedding market. He's got his suit on, and I think he's almost ready, so let me give you a head start to grab that coffee or any warm alcoholic beverage, and let's start the class. Brian Leahy is a laid-back social guy with an intense passion for people and travel. His philosophy is simple. Every great photo starts with connection. A connection with the couple, their loved ones, their crazy friends, and the natural beauty of their wedding location. His outgoing nature, relaxed style, and knack for capturing fleeting candid moments has made him one of the most sought-after photographers in the U.S., both for local events and destination weddings around the world. For Brian, photography is more than just the end result. It's about the experience too. His background in travel photography informs his style and technique, but his personality leads the rest. The best images come with trust and rapport as Brian becomes part of your group, blending in to find those special candid moments. This interview is going to be great because, you know, I love working weddings, and I also like raising prices because it involves making money. So without further ado, here's my friend, Brian Leahy. Hey, Brian. Thanks for finally being on the show. Yeah, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Me too. I've been dreaming of this day because I've always like been chasing you around and trying to <laughs> see like what I could ask you. And this is, this is like the perfect situation and the perfect time. So I can't Well, wait. that's very flattering. I appreciate it. So before we start, I always try to do this thing where you tell us something about yourself that people probably don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I've been shooting full time for 10 years and most people know me that way. But what I used to do before I was a photographer I actually used to be in the mortgage business. So I was a uh, real estate mortgage broker out in Arizona for about seven or eight years. Uh, up until the market crashed and my company went bankrupt. So now, <laughs> now I'm a photographer and it's way better. Hey, that's good to know. You know what's funny? I moved here. I came here 2008 and that's when the market crashed, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I knew. I saw, wow, when the market crashed, the company I was overseeing, they were doing 150 weddings a year. And I'm like, Man, people are people still have money. Yep, so exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> people will always I, get married. Yes, exactly. So 
Well, while we're talking about that, I want to know how you got into the business and what what are you up to now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So was doing the mortgage thing for quite a while. Uh, after college, I actually started traveling quite a bit just personally. I'm, I, I love travel. Um, I did some really major like four or five, six month trips to South America. I lived in Argentina for about six months and just kind of started shooting just for fun while I was at all these really incredible places. Had never really picked up a camera before until I started traveling and came back and had a lot of friends in Arizona say, wow, these travel photos are actually really good. You should get into photography. So I started shooting uh, real estate and realtor headshots and families and babies and dogs and crappy Tucson nightclubs for seven bucks an hour uh, and just kind of did it on the side just for fun. And then, yeah, when the market crashed, I was already planning on uh, moving out of the country for a little while and shot some more down in South America and traveled some more and uh, came back and started working for a graduation photography company that shot all across the country and got to travel quite a bit and shoot graduations all over the country and ended up in LA shooting a high school in the Palisades. And I have some family out here, hit them up and was like, Hey, I'm in town for 24 hours. Would love to see you guys. And my aunt who didn't even know I was doing photography was like, wow, my best friend's a food photographer. I should introduce you guys. So we actually went and met her that afternoon and went and checked out her studio. And I had never really been to LA before and had never even been in a photography studio and was just kind of blown away with it. And basically asked the photographer, I said, hey, can I come work for you for free for three months on an internship and just, you know, I'll do whatever you need, just teach me. And she was totally down for it. So I moved out to LA like two weeks later. I uh, was supposed to be here for three months and then go back to Arizona. But after about two weeks in Los Angeles, I totally fell in love with it. And now it's been nine and a half years. I, I knew that I was like, I'm not going back to Arizona. And now, now, yeah, now I'm coming up on, on a full 10 years in LA. And, you know, when I first moved out here, I was shooting everything. So bar mitzvahs, a little bit of wedding stuff here and there. Uh, I didn't actually really enjoy weddings. I shot my first wedding probably 11 or 12 years ago and had some family friends call me up and said, hey, we know you're getting into photography. We'll pay you like 400 bucks if you want to come shoot our wedding. And I was like, oh my God, $400. That's great. Just to show up and hang out at a party and take photos. Great. <laughs> and uh, I had never even attended a wedding before. So I was completely unprepared. Bought myself a flash, uh, which I had no idea how to use. I had like a little Canon Rebel XTI from, you know, 2005 and shot their wedding. And it was fine. I, you know, the, the photos were terrible. Absolutely terrible. Uh, but the couple was super happy. They weren't going to have photos anyway. So they were just excited to have have some images and kind of help me out. But after that wedding, I swore I would never shoot a wedding again because it was so stressful and I was totally unprepared, didn't have the right equipment, didn't know the timeline, didn't know how, how a wedding day progresses. And so for a full year and a half, I didn't shoot any weddings, uh, mostly just some portrait stuff and real estate, whatever. And I had a good buddy call me up. He said, hey, we just got engaged. I've seen your portrait work. It's really nice. I'd love for you to shoot my wedding. And I told him, absolutely not. I don't shoot weddings. And he said, yeah, yeah, just give me a quote. and We'll go from there. So I quoted him extra high, considering this was like a Tucson wedding and I had no wedding experience. And, you know, enough to scare him off. And he called me back and he's like, okay, great. We'll send you a deposit. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's not the response I was hoping for. So, uh, you know, I ended up, uh, I basically spent six months online reading everything I could find on wedding photography and watched all the forums and Kelby training and YouTube and, and all that jazz. And 
bought myself a very fancy 70 to 200 2.8, not knowing how to use that either, but slowly learned right before and shot his wedding and had a pretty good time, but it was never meant to be a, a career. I really still didn't enjoy it that much. But once I got out to LA and started shooting a lot of different types of events and started shooting still life and you know real estate and all that good stuff. Like most photographers, I shot everything and never said no to a project and then realized what I enjoyed the most, what I was good at. And so about seven and a half years ago, decided to go weddings full time and cut everything else out. And about three, two and a half, three years ago, I made the transition to full time destination weddings only. I still shoot some so SoCal weddings, but destinations pretty much my jam. And uh, yeah, that's all I do now. So I shoot full time and I travel a ton. It's funny I, when you were saying like, oh, I was taking photos in a club and parties. I, mm -hmm. I feel like everyone has to go through that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's the beginner photography gauntlet. You have to shoot every crappy <laughs> event you can first. Yeah. And you have to have like the greasy hair with the spiky hair. It's just. Oh, it's 100%. Amazing. I mean, I think I had my ears pierced still back in the day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Me too. Because for me, the luxury market is the dream, right? When you're starting out. That's always what I wanted to do. And I wonder what advice you have for people who are starting out that want to, that have the same dream. Like, because I remember you said that you worked for a photographer first. Like you, did you message her? You messaged her, right? I was introduced to her from a family friend. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I first came out to LA, I worked with or for, I mean, probably 40 different photographers my first few years here. So every connection I could possibly make. So like, you know, if I worked with one photographer, I let them know, hey, if you have any photographer friends who need an assistant, who need a third photographer, who just need an intern. Uh, so I worked for free a ridiculous amount. And I still work for free sometimes too. Like I'm shooting an event for free next weekend down in San Diego. But it's it's much more strategic now versus back in the day. I'd just be like, great, I just need to get out. I need I need the experience, I need the practice. So, you know, I did work for quite a few people and, you know, the transition to luxury and destination, those are not necessarily the same thing, but a lot of times they are because once you start doing large scale destination weddings, those budgets tend to be pretty large, especially if they're flying me or they're flying their vendor team in from other states, they're generally going to have a pretty large budget. Um, you know, moving into that market took... 10 years and it's not easy. And I'm still, I still don't necessarily consider myself a luxury destination photographer because I'm not shooting, you know, a Bruno Mars wedding, or I'm not shooting a Nick Jonas and a Priyanka Chopra wedding, but you know, I will shoot weddings that have a million dollar budget, a $2 million budget, but then I'll still photograph weddings in SoCal or in Napa Sonoma or in Arizona that are a $200,000, $300,000 budget. So, you know, the one thing I would say to folks looking to move into that market is take your time. You know, the biggest thing I tell my couples is that outside of my photography, they're paying me for my experience. And so 10 years of shooting full time, I've shot hundreds and hundreds of weddings. I can work in any lighting condition. I can work in a ballroom. I can work in a, a vineyard. Uh, and that's really what my clients are paying me for is my experience beyond my photography. Because at this point, the photography is fairly easy it's the harder part is knowing how to anticipate problems and deal with, you know, lighting conditions and crappy weather and all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, I think a lot of people 
would love to rush into doing luxury, but it's a really hard market to get in. And I'm still constantly working to build myself up more in it. So my best advice is be patient, shoot as much as you can and meet as many people as you can. That's, that's really like the, the key to getting into a luxury and destination market is you really just have to get out there and meet as many people as you can. Okay. So when you say meeting as many people as you can, should you filter the people or do you just go out there and because from my experience, at least from the people that I talk to, for example, they, they network with other vendors, right? And they mm-hmm. do like a styled shoot or uh, they do an actual wedding and it turns out the, the relationship doesn't really work and mm-hmm. it's not uh, uh, the wedding that they imagined it to be. So sure. it, it's kind of like disappointing to them. I don't know if people should start to like filter whoever they network with or... Sure. Sure. That's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, in your first five to seven years of business, I think you take as many of the opportunities as you can, you know, especially for photography and videography and most, most wedding vendors tend to chase the same people up the ladder. So, you know, when, when clients are booking all of their wedding vendors, the top two people that normally get booked are venue first and then like planner and photographer. Those are generally the top three. Normally it's always gonna be venue first because you can't book anybody else until you have a date. But what we tend to do as photographers and videographers is we're constantly like chasing planners and venues like, hey, I'd love to be on your list. Hey, I'd love to work together. And, and what, I, what I find a lot of vendors doing, regardless of category, is they tend to ignore the vendors at the bottom end. And what I say by bottom end, what I mean by that is vendors that tend to get booked last or they're smaller budget. So like hair and makeup, catering, I mean, even floral sometimes. And so you find wedding people discount those vendor categories because they don't see them as being able to pass off referrals. But I'll tell you, I mean, some of my best referral sources in the last couple of years, not so much now that I'm doing destination, but when I was doing a lot of local stuff, even high end local, some of my best wedding referrals came from catering companies and cake designers, which you wouldn't think makes a lot of sense because how is a cake designer able to refer out a photographer? But what you got to keep in mind is that especially food, catering and, and cake, these companies are also doing a ton of auxiliary events outside of just weddings. So catering companies are doing 50th wedding anniversaries. They're doing birthday parties. They're doing bar mitzvahs. And so they're, they're working a lot of these other auxiliary events outside of weddings. And so when they do that, you know, adults 50th anniversary party, oh, lo and behold, daughter's getting married next year and needs a photographer. And so because these catering and uh, cake design companies are working with, you know, a pretty broad range of clients, they just have access to a lot more people than we necessarily do. And so I think when you're looking at the vendors that you want to build relationships with, you know, I think it's absolutely a great idea to consider vendors in every category because you never know where your next referral is going to come from. And I know a lot of people just chase wedding planners and venues, but you know, you're missing out on a huge opportunity to build relationships with all these other vendor categories that very well may turn out to send you really good business. So I, I think that's, that's the key is that, you know, spread yourself pretty wide as far as the types of people you're looking at. But I also equate networking to dating. I mean, it's not enough that, you know, you like somebody's work. You need to really like them as a person. I mean, if, if their work's amazing, but they're kind of a jackass, like that's, that's not a relationship that's ever going to grow, that it's not going to be a good relationship. 
you know, these are people that you're spending a really large amount of time with that, you know, they're expecting amazing photos from us and amazing videos, and they're reliant on us to get them that content. And so having a really strong personal relationship is as important as just liking each other's work. I've been seeing a lot of those kinds of people lately. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, because this industry in Southern California, it's just such a huge base. Like there's so many people here. And whenever whenever people talk about like, oh, this person stole my work and I'm supposed to do this wedding. I'm like, there's so much work here. This is it's like crazy. There's it's, so much work. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember you said earlier when we were talking, you were talking about whenever videographers want to get into the luxury market, the destination mm -hmm. market, there's a different way that you would suggest. You know, I have a few thoughts about videographers specifically. In my opinion, especially on a national scale, really, really talented, friendly, easy to work with videographers, in my opinion, is actually fairly hard to come by. Um, you know, I, I always hate to say this, but it's it's kind of true. In, in reality, in my opinion, again, people are going to be like, this guy, fuck him. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in my opinion, and, and, and I think it's reality, for the majority of couples getting married, they don't put as much value on video as they do on photo. And that's shown, you know, in the amount of money that video teams can charge compared to photo teams. It's shown in how many video teams there are compared to photographers of which there are like a hundred fold more photographers than video teams. And so, you know, it's not very seldom is a video team getting booked before a photographer. And it's just because most clients don't are not properly educated on the power of video and how amazing it can be. And so videographers have an uphill battle in getting themselves into these kinds of markets. But I think, you know, as a video team recognizing, okay, great. Like I get it. If I'm not going to be placed as high of a priority for the couple, where else can I put myself that somebody else is going to place me in a really high value? And that's photographers and planners because, you know, the photo video team on a wedding is the most important team because we have to work side by side for 12 hours. And so I always say photo video teams are either combative or they're collaborative and there's not a lot in the middle. And so you may have a photo video team who they both walk in there and they both have really strong egos and they both have chips on their shoulders that well, no, I'm, I'm the important one today, or I'm, I'm the most important. My clients paid me more, so I'm in charge. And so, and I see this a lot of, uh, all the time. I mean, not so much anymore, but you know, when I was doing slightly less expensive weddings and anybody in the middle has probably seen this all the time, you, you've got these egos that are competing instead of collaborating. And what makes a really good photo and video team is somebody who's like, they both go in there and say, Hey, listen, I understand you got to get what you got to get. And I got to get what I got to get. So let's work together to make this really happen today. And so, you know, I think setting that stage early between photo and video is really important. And, you know, doing a little bit of outreach to photographers to say, Hey, listen, um, you know, I really dig your work. Feel free to check mine out. My team loves to collaborate with photographers. We love to kind of shoot side by side. We love to shoot over your shoulder. So we're not having to direct, uh, you know, cause what I see a lot of times is, is video teams, especially SoCal because so many of them are coming from like a, a cinema background. These video teams want to be cinematographers and they want to direct. But at the end of the day, our couples are not actors. And so they already have a hard enough time in front of my camera for me taking photos. But when you now tell a normal you know, Stacy and Steve, okay, now you guys have to like reenact your first look, but make it look like the first one. 
<laughs> that never works. Like I've never seen a second look restaged and a uh, first look restaged and have it look exactly like the first one because our, our clients are not actors. And so, you know, I think when video teams approach photographers that they want to work with, you know, I think that's an important conversation to have is, Hey, listen, we, we understand that you guys are going to do the majority of the directing. We have a few things that we love to do our weddings at our weddings to get, you know, our final videos. And here's kind of how we love to do that. Uh, but I think that open and honest communication that everyone needs to recognize that for the majority of the day, the photographer is in charge of making sure that timeline's running on time. Like, you know, we're the ones doing, you know, all the family photos and the bridal party photos. And if any of that runs late, it messes with the entire day. Photo and video, or I'm sorry, video has basically not a whole lot to do during bridal party and family photos. And so, you know, I think recognizing that there's a lot of weight on the shoulders of photographers to make sure that day runs smoothly just that simple acknowledgement makes a huge difference when it comes to having a really collaborative relationship between photo and video. I actually just recorded a podcast episode about the importance of knowing how to pose a bridal party. And yeah. one of the one of the key things there is create a rapport with the photographer because mm -hmm. you know there are times when the photographer runs out of ideas and you Oh, should, absolutely. You should and that's learn. a good time for the video team to step in. Yeah. yeah. And you should learn how to pose them because at least you could help out and make sure that the photographer is always running with ideas and, you know, they can take a break and you, it's your turn. You know, it's really important to do that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, that communication at the start of the day for both teams to say, Hey, listen, you know, if you need anything, let me know if I'm in your way, let me know like that kind of communication at the very outset of the day makes a really huge difference. And yeah, like, absolutely. We get, you know, we get creative blocks all the time. We'll be shooting portraits for half an hour and I'll be like, okay, my brain can't think for a minute. And then I'll look at the video team and say, Hey, do you guys need to get anything? And they'll be like, Oh sure. We could use a couple minutes. And a lot of times they're going to come up with creative stuff that I hadn't thought of. And I can now shoot over their shoulder as well and kind of shoot some stills of what they're doing. So, but yeah, I think, you know, I think the first five minutes in that getting ready room is the most important to set the stage of how that photo and video team is going to, going to collaborate because I mean, you can, you can always tell when a team, whether it's photo or video walks in and immediately has an ego and immediately like we're in charge, this is our day. And, you know, I think when those egos enter the door, it, it just sets a very negative tone for the whole day. Whereas if you walk in and you're like, Hey, I'm Steve, let me know if you need anything. This is normally kind of how we do this. But if you have another way that you like best, let us know, you know, that, that simple change, even of your tone, when you introduce yourself makes a huge difference in how the next 12 hours of that day are going to go. Those five minutes are really important. Yeah. I can't tell you how much smiling I do. <laughs> <laughs> it makes such a difference, though. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah, because whenever I walk into the room and I don't know who the photographer is, I, as soon as I walk in the room and they look at me and I see that they're not as excited as I am, uh -huh. then I turn on the charm and, you know, I smile <laughs> all the time. And cause, Exactly. Because, you exactly. know, it's most... Most of the time, photographers, they have bad experiences with videographers. So don't expect the photographers to be like, hey, finally, you. <laughs> it's true. It, it, I mean, you're, yeah, you're totally right. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, and I hate to say this, but sometimes when I have a wedding and I find out there's not a video team, I'm pretty stoked because I'm like, great. <laughs> now, now I got like the whole day. I don't have to worry about it. Like it's like, and that's a terrible thing to say, but uh, any, any photographer will agree that like, sometimes they're like relieved that there's not necessarily a video team. And I bet there's plenty of video teams that wish there was not a photographer at the wedding at all, because it's the same thing too. Like there's egos on both sides. And so, but yeah, you're right. I mean, just putting out that smile because we have had 
bad interactions, everyone has, but putting out that smile and like setting the tone right off the bat that, Hey, this is going to be a positive experience just by the fact of smiling makes such a huge difference. Yeah. Just for the record, whenever we get a wedding without a photographer, I really miss having a photographer at a wedding. Have you, shot, have you had a wedding with no photo? They didn't hire anyone. They had a friend who oh, barely, gotcha. who barely shot. So it's pretty much just us. That and, sounds awesome for you guys. <laughs> oh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> Although the, the photo people, the people with the cameras, yeah. they were nice. They were just like, okay, let us know if we need to move. I'm like, I need you here. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, stay. You're supposed to be directing. <laughs> so, yeah, but most of the time, it becomes a nice experience whenever you start those five minutes with, hi, you know, introduce yourself Absolutely. and be friendly. Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing, too, is like starting off on, on a positive note, the camaraderie between a really good photo and video team is huge when you started off that positive because we're all seeing the same stuff. We're all going to go behind the curtain at dinner and be like, oh, my God, did you see that happen? Versus like yes. photos on one side of the tent and videos on the other because they're not talking and everyone's grumpy. So, you know, and I think, yeah, I think that camaraderie is important because it really does make a difference. I think realistically, the biggest difference it makes is in the final product because my photos are going to be better if I'm working with a phenomenal video team and their video is going to be way better if they're working with a really talented photo team who's doing really good poses and really good setups that they can shoot. You know what I mean? I was just going to say most of the wedding videos that we did that look so good are the ones mm -hmm. where the photographers are our friends. Yeah, absolutely. Because you feed off that energy. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about like the entire pricing and marketing, but I feel like I want to ask you first, because for us, I feel like we are in the high mid market. Mm -hmm. And most of my friends are in that market. Like we charge like $5,000. That's our average. Yeah. That's our batting average. Yeah. And I was wondering, what can you do to punch a hole through that, through that market? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like based on your experience. Yeah. So, I mean, the middle. Yeah. I mean, you guys are in a great spot, like five to seven, especially for California is a great place to be. Um, punching through there is actually really difficult, I, especially on the photo video side. Getting above like 6,000 is a little tricky. Uh, but what you'll notice is that when you, the way to get above that is to really take a look at the vendors who are referring you and where your weddings are actually coming from. Your referral sources, in my opinion, dictate what prices you can charge more than anything. Like at a certain degree, your work is good enough. Like your work could be just as good as somebody who charges four times what you guys do. The only difference between the two of you is the network and the referral sources you have. So your work, you know, right now is stellar. You could be shooting, you know, $2 million weddings. The reason you're not is because those couples are finding all of their vendors through their wedding planner. And so I think the, the toughest part is getting out of those weddings that don't necessarily have a wedding planner or don't have a wedding planner who's pushing you guys. Because in the middle, when you've got clients who, you know, are spending, you know, 50K on their wedding, 60K, 75, maybe even 90 those couples are not necessarily hiring a full wedding planner. They mm -hmm. may hire like a partial or a day of, or their venue may include like the on-site manager who doesn't necessarily actually do that much. 
aside from make sure your food goes down on time. So, you know, when you're booking those weddings, those weddings are getting referred to you by, you know, a previous bride, or they found you on Instagram, or they found you on Google or Yelp or wherever it may be. The, the thing you'll notice is that when you start to get into the higher end, every one of those couples is hiring a wedding planner and the power that that planner has to push their vendors is massive. And so, you know, at the weddings that I'm, I'm shooting right now, like I charge anywhere from 10 to 25 grand, um, more on the higher end for my destination weddings, which we can get into on how I'm charging that. But realistically, I haven't had a wedding in probably three years that did not have a wedding planner. And so you've got to know, even if you have a bride that, you know, emails you or drops you a DM off of Instagram, that's a higher end bride. And she's like, Hey, love your work. As soon as she hires that wedding planner, that wedding planner is incentivized because they want to work with their friends. They want to work with the teams that they like and enjoy and know they're going to get good stuff out of. So even if you've got a bride or groom, that's really interested in you, as soon as they hire that wedding planner, that wedding planner is going to push her preferred vendors. And so, you know, really breaking out of that middle market is, really breaking out of your current referral source because you can't depend on your past brides to bring you high level weddings. That's just not how it works. Like brides are going to refer like brides. So if you've got a couple who's spending a hundred grand, most of their friends for the most part also are going to have roughly that same, uh, that same budget. You're not going to have a hundred thousand dollar bride who's going to refer you to her friend who wants to spend a million dollars on her wedding. They just generally don't run in the same circles. And so at that point, you're like, okay, how do I find that bride who's going to drop a million bucks on her wedding? Well, what are the venues she's getting married at? Who are the wedding planners she's talking to? Who are the florists she's looking at? And so I think that's the biggest shift that you need to look at in your business is where exactly are all my current weddings coming from? And where are the brides and grooms that I would like to work with? Where are they getting married? Who are they working with? I remember we had an inquiry maybe two, three years ago. And she was an inquiry because she was a friend of a bride that we shot five years ago. Mm -hmm. And we gave her our price list. And it was like $3,000 to start. That was like a bare bones, bare package. And she came back to us and she said, wait, I thought you were like $1,200. <laughs> you wanted your 2010 price. Yep. So, yeah. So, for the record, where we are right now, I feel very comfortable because we're we're high volume, mm -hmm. and I really like working local. So that's yeah. why I just network with all local people. And, well, yeah, and that's exactly it. And and here's the thing, you know, a lot of people look at the luxury and destination markets because, like you had mentioned earlier, they seem glamorous. And oh my gosh, like I would love to shoot a million dollar wedding. The problem that you run into is the amount of people who are willing to pay luxury prices is a lot lower than people who are willing to pay middle of the road, upper, upper class prices. And so, you know, I may, I mean, I'll just tell you, like during my heyday when I was charging, you know, between four and seven grand, you know, three, four five years ago, I was shooting 22, 33, 43 weddings per year. And it was great. I mean, I made really solid money. Um, I kept super busy. It was tough because I had a lot of clients, but I was working every weekend and, and made really good money and it was consistent. And that was, that was the key is that when you're in those kind of price ranges, like you are now and you're comfortable, comfortable also, you know, could be taken with a negative connotation, but the beauty of comfortable means it's also consistent. So when you've got, 
you know, because you guys are doing pumping out so many weddings right now. That's great because you're in demand. Your prices are not too high that people are like, ah, that's way too much. Like your, your booking percentages, I can probably guess are fairly high. Um, and that's, that's a great place to be because it's consistent. Whereas now when I'm on the very high end, especially for the rates that I'm charging, I may go a month and a half, two months without booking a wedding, which I recently did like December and January. I didn't book shit. And I was like, Oh, this sucks. But in the span of the last seven days, I'm booking probably four weddings, nice. maybe five, which are going to result in probably 80 or $90,000 in income this year. So the thing with higher end and luxury and destination and, and the pricier stuff is that the peaks and valleys are much, much higher than when you're in the middle. And so the consistency in my booking is terrible because the number of people willing to pay this kind of money is a lot lower. So that's, that's one thing I always caution people into. They just see these big numbers and they're like, well, I mean, shoot, if I could shoot a million dollar wedding, but I could shoot 30 of those a year at 25 grand, I'd be super rich. That's kind of not how it works though. And ask anybody who shoots really high end stuff, they're not shooting consistently and, or they're not booking consistently because it's just a much, much tougher market and it's a much smaller market of people willing to pay that kind of money. Hey, high risk, high reward, right? That's, that's exactly it. Absolutely. And I mean, like I have days where I'm like, shit, I wish I could go back to charging six grand and shoot 35 weddings and just know that I have a paycheck every two weeks, yeah. you know, but it, that's exactly it. It is, it is high risk and you have to be able to stomach those, those valleys because to not get a paycheck for two months is rough, but now my next paycheck is going to be fairly significant and then I'm set for months. So it's, it takes a lot of confidence to weather those valleys, knowing that the peaks will eventually come. For me, the the older I get, I think my body's responding already to shooting every weekend. <laughs> it's tough. It is, I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, because if I were like 25, man, I, I used to do uh, Friday to Sunday shooting weddings every Whoa. single weekend. Nope. <laughs> and it was fun. Nope. It was fun. Exactly. Because, Back in the day. Yeah. But yeah, now I kind of want to slow down. And it's a good thing that we built the business to have other filmmakers with us and help us with shooting the wedding. I'm really proud of the way we built that system because as you should be. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing that people don't necessarily realize too, when it comes to the luxury and destination world is everybody gets caught up on like, how many weddings are you shooting this year? Like how many do you have booked? How many did you do last year? The number of weddings doesn't really give you an actual good idea of how well people are doing. Like, you know, I shot 16 weddings last year. This year I'm currently booked on like seven or eight. I'm hoping to shoot 13 or 14 this year, which sounds like not a lot of weddings. Yeah. But what you got to keep in mind is that, especially on the higher end of things, you're shooting way more. Because like if I shoot a SoCal wedding, I'm shooting one day. I'm shooting Saturday for nine to 10 hours, like typical wedding day, no big deal. Every single one of my destination or luxury weddings I'm shooting multiple days. So on average, I'm shooting two to three and sometimes I'm shooting four to five days. So I'm photographing the rehearsal dinner, the welcome party, the guy's golf tournament, the girl's bridal luncheon, the Sunday brunch, plus the wedding day. And so, you know, I may only shoot 16 weddings, but in total, I'm probably shooting 50 days, which is a lot more than if you're shooting 30 weddings that are single day weddings. 
And so when you get into that higher end market, those clients can and do spend a lot of money on auxiliary events outside of the actual wedding day. And they're normally going to hire on vendors for all those events as well. And so that's what you got to keep in mind too, is that, you know, when people are like, well, oh my gosh, he only has 12 weddings. It's like, yeah, but he's out of town for eight days because he's shooting for five days for this particular wedding. Um, and I mean, I can tell you every single wedding I have booked this year, I'm shooting at least two days, but most of them I'm shooting for three days. So that's the other thing too, is that people get too wrapped up in like competing, like, Ooh, he's got so many weddings or, Ooh, they only have so many, but that doesn't give you a real good picture of how much that person's actually working. So it's, but you know, in regards to pricing too, that's the beauty of luxury and destination as well is that you've got your price for wedding day, but then you're now making extra money on all those auxiliary events. So you're charging an extra $2,000 for three hours to shoot rehearsal on Friday night. And you're, sh you're charging an extra $2,000 for brunch on Sunday. Uh, and wow. so all that little stuff tends to add up really, really quick, but because your clients are already spending so much money, an extra couple grand here and there is not that big of a deal. So that's why once you start hitting the higher end destination and luxury, there's the opportunity per wedding to make a lot more because they're hiring you on to actually, you're working a lot more than you would for just like your typical at home one day wedding. Okay. I'm curious now, aren't you considering doing associate because you know, the potential of getting more, more money. Cause the reason why I make this podcast is because I like money. Right. So no, me, too. <laughs> me too, buddy. <laughs> my internal thing is just screaming associate program <laughs> for sure. So I have a few thoughts. Absolutely not. I do not want to do an associate program. I've okay. done it before. I will never do it again. I think there's a major difference between associate programs for photo and associate programs for video. And, and the reason I say that is because, because photographers have such a higher percentage and amount of interaction with our couples, especially on wedding day, because we're directing, because we're in charge of the family photos and we need to know the names of every person in that family. And we need to know the names of every person in that bridal party, because there's so much interaction between photo and our clients it's really tough for someone to hire someone who's not Brian Leahy. So, you know, when a client needs that comfort level of someone who is going to be with them for 12 hours and needs to know and have an intimate level of relationship with their family and their best friends, it's hard for me to say, Hey, listen, Steve, who works on my team is as awesome as I am. So you should just, you, you know, I'm slightly out of budget. You guys should hire him instead. That's it's a, it's a lot of a more tough sell. And, on the video side, like I have, especially on the luxury and high end, let me tell you, I have a ton of video teams that I work with that run massive associate programs that are very successful. And a lot of times, you know, the couple is hiring the video company, not a specific person on that video team. And so I see at most of my weddings, like the video team rolls in and they're introducing themselves for the first time to that bride and groom. But because they're not you know, they haven't done the engagement session. They didn't shoot rehearsal the night before because they're not directing bridal party and family. The couples are not really bothered by somebody showing up that they don't actually know. And so I, you know, I know a few, especially again on the high end, the video teams I work with have incredibly successful associate programs. Um, whereas on the photo, it's really tough. And, and the tricky part with an associate program too is finding somebody who's equally as talented, who is going to be cool to stick around and work for you for more than a year. Because if you've got a really talented, like I'm not going to hire an associate who's not really amazing, but 
you know, if they're making a thousand dollars working for me, but they could be making five or six thousand dollars on their own, it's hard to find a really talented, unmotivated photographer. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Because the the difference in that price is just so so large compared to what they're making associate versus their own weddings that. You know, there's a few successful photo, you know, companies that have large associate programs. But, you know, the way I look at it, too, is I, I love money probably as much as you do. <laughs> the fact that I have no one I have to pay, like I have my editor that I pay a little bit. I have somebody who manages like my album. So I pay a little bit. I have a retoucher who I pay a little bit. But realistically, like when I pull in a check for, you know, 15 or 20 K, sure, you know, I have to factor in my travel costs and my team costs and my second photographer and all that. But I'm keeping such a large percentage of that, that I'm totally comfortable with it. Whereas the income that you can make on an associate program is, can be decent if you're pumping out a lot of them. But for me, the stress of managing an associate program I found was not worth my money. Like the, the minimal amount of money I was making to run that associate program. So I think, I think on photo, it's, it's really tough. I think for video, it's absolutely something that companies can do and do very well because I see it all the time. When we started the business, that, that was my thing. I didn't want to call them associates because I wanted to make sure that we train everyone the same way that I was trained. Sure. So kind of like I get to see like who, oh, this guy could be lead. This guy could be uh, an assistant. This guy could be a solid second shooter. So that's how we categorize our guys. The assistants are who we call associates. You know, we have an associate too, but they're like the third, third from the lead. Totally. So I wanted to ask you about, because we already tapped into pricing. You already talked about that for a little bit. I wanted to ask, how do you handle pricing? How do you present to your clients? Is there like a strategy? Because I know that when high-end clients see low prices, they automatically say, no, not that person. So is there like a strategy that you do with pricing? Um, the thing I've noticed at this point is every situation is going to be different now, especially because I'm shooting a smaller number of events. So I've got like my pricing PDF and I have my general rates that I like to charge. Um, but because every wedding that I book is coming from a wedding planner, not every wedding, but a, a vast majority of the weddings that I book come from wedding planners. Every wedding planner works differently. So what, you know, one pricing system that may work for one planner doesn't work as well for another. And what I mean by that is I have some planners who only want to see one price they, and they'll send me a list. They're like, we need three hours coverage Friday. We need 10 hours coverage Saturday. We need an engagement session in Dallas, but we want a bridal session in Santa Fe plus include all the travel costs in that my the father of the bride only wants to see one price so that's how quite a few of mine work and so basically every quote i'm giving them is custom they they have a, a pretty good idea of what my broad range of prices is so they they know right off the bat whether i'm in their client's budget or not uh but almost every quote for them is going to be custom whereas i have other planners who say okay great here's what we need but i want it broken out so i want one price for your services and then I want another price for your travel costs, mainly because they're compete. I'm competing against, say, a, a local photographer who's not charging travel costs, um, and so it, it's it, it varies a ton. So I mean, even even this morning, I worked up probably three or four different quotes, but they were all fairly custom to what that couple needs. 
And the other thing too, is when you're working with these planners and these are all very, very good friends of mine as well. So we have the ability to be very honest with each other. And that planner will say sometimes, Hey, I've got a $20,000 budget. Here's the things that we need. Can you squeeze all of this into that? Or they'll say, you know, my client doesn't have any idea on their budget. We can probably go a little higher than we normally would, but I want you to also shoot, you know, come in two hours early and shoot extra details for me. So there's, there's not, I don't, I, nowadays I don't have just like one price that I send out to everybody because each of these weddings is a little more elaborate and a little more custom. All of my pricing kind of matches that at this point for my SoCal weddings. I have one pricing PDF. I just send it and almost every single SoCal wedding I shoot falls into my base package because they need nine hours coverage, two shooters, possibly an engagement session. That's about it. So for my local ones, it's pretty cut and dry, but for the luxury and the destination side, it's always going to be a lot more custom. So do you just leave elbow room for your prices, for your costing, I mean, or do you try to anticipate what the wedding planner would want and then you just put the price there? Um, again, it depends, but because I can have an honest conversation with these planners, gotcha. like like prime example, I'm, I'm bidding out a job uh, for a wedding in Santa Fe for later this year. The couple lives in Dallas. Their parents have a home in Santa Fe. It's going to be a full weekend of events. Bride wants full wedding day coverage, rehearsal coverage. We're going to shoot her bridal portraits in Dallas and we're shooting their engagement session in Santa Fe. Plus the planner wanted me to roll in all the travel costs. So it was a huge bid. It was like 25 or $26,000. Mm -hmm. um, but in having the conversation with that planner, she said, listen, you know, you're competing with this one other photographer, you know, they're probably going to come in less than you, just so you know that I'm like, okay, great. And I knew with the price that I had given, I have some wiggle room in there. And I, you know, and I literally can say that to her and say, listen, you know, obviously you and I have a great working relationship. This sounds like a great wedding. It sounds like a couple that's going to be a really good fit for me and that I'm going to be a good fit for them. If I need to, you know, put some wiggle room in there, just know that you've got that. And so she can keep that in her back pocket now because again, she's presenting these options to the, uh, to the couple, but she can also say, hey, listen, Brian may be a little more expensive, but he's bringing a third photographer who's going to man your photo booth the whole time, or he's going to come in and do this. Um, and she knows if, if it gets to the point where it's down to me and the other photographer and the couple's like, we really love Brian, but he's a little too expensive. She already knows that she can come back to me and be like, listen, can we knock it down like a grand or two? And I'm going to be like, absolutely, like done. So you know, when you, when you get to that point, the planners that you work with and the vendors that are referring you, you you're going to build those kinds of relationships that you can have that honest conversation and be like, cool, I definitely have, you know, wiggle room on this. I can't wiggle on this, you know, whatever it may be, you, you kind of build those relationships to, to have that level of trust in there. It's crazy because when you're talking to the planner the entire time, I think that's mm -hmm. how we, that's how I realize we're not high end is because we don't deal with the planners. We mm -hmm. deal with the couples like we always just talk to them and, you know, just everything like payment and showing them or, you know, talking to them. So that's the big difference for me so far. That's the big that's the one thing I see that's different between your market and ours. Yeah, well, and that's and that's the crazy thing is that, you know, these clients are and, and it's not crazy in a bad way, but these clients are giving planners essentially full control to really I mean, the clients are hiring these planners because they trust them. And so, you know, in, in that planner client relationship, the planner really is doing all of the work. And so I have like, I've booked 
weddings where I have never spoken to the couple, have never had a single email with them, have never spoken to them on the phone because the planner is doing all of it. And yes, my client may sign that and they'll send me their deposit. But I mean, I'm working on two bids right now with couples I've never spoken with, but it's all through the planner right now. And same thing too. Like I got a, I got a request and inquiry this morning for a bar mitzvah in 2020. It's going to be all done through the planner. And at some point the client may say, okay, we at least want to hop on the phone with Brian to make sure that we're cool. But a lot of times at that high end, it's not necessarily that important because the clients have so much trust in their planner that they, they know the planner is only going to connect them with people that are the best fit for them. Isn't that scary? Because uh, at least for my experience, whenever we get a planner like that, which is mm-hmm. rare, but whenever we get a planner like that, they're so controlling that for me, I can't, I'm like, I'm, I'm still shooting this one. Or she's like, turn your lights off and, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. we're so not used to having a planner like that. Sure. That it's a little scary that giving them that power. But fortunately for you, I'm assuming that most of the planners you work with are amazing to work with. Exactly. That's exactly it. And so I think that's the problem that you'll run into initially as you move out of that like five or $6,000 range. The planners that you're going to work with are not necessarily the best of the best. They're, you know, they're kind of at the same level. And so you, I, you know, I have worked with planners who want to control every single piece of the day. And at a certain point, you kind of just have to let them like, I'll stand my ground if I feel like something's not kosher. But at the end of the day, you know, especially if that planner referred me, then I'm going to kind of meld my disposition around them a little bit as, you know, obviously making sure I'm still taking care of my clients as best I can. Um, but yeah, once you start to get to the top end, these planners are consummate professionals and they expect you to be as professional as well. So very seldom do I get hardcore micromanaged at my high end weddings. The, the hardcore micromanagement really only comes down to, Hey, I want the room shot this specific way. And at no point will I ever say no. So I'm like, great, awesome. I'm going to do it your way first. Then I'll do it my way. That way we've got a couple options. But for the most part, my planners refer me out because they trust me and they know that I'm going to get everything that they need and they're not going to have to micromanage me. Whereas when you get newer planners, especially if it's like one of their, especially when you get a planner who like this is their first high end wedding, they tend to be a little extra crazy about it because they are so worried about getting the photos and videos that they need. So, but once you've got a planner with a few, you know, higher end events under her belt, she's going to be more comfortable, especially if she's worked with you before knowing that you're going to get her what she needs. So it it really comes down to trust and, and building again, building those relationships. So those people know they can trust you. They don't have to micromanage you and they know, okay, Brian's going to be a really good fit for this couple, not necessarily for this couple and just letting them kind of handle things a little more. It's actually really nice. From my experience, it was a fucking nightmare because she's like, controlling us she was controlling us the entire day i'm like this wedding isn't even high end and then at the end of the day she was just smiling but the 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 whole day she was just like looking at us she's like where are you going what are you drinking i'm like i'm drinking water <laughs> it's it was a nightmare but yeah i mean and, and you know and the thing too is like listen it especially because you guys are booking consistently you don't really need to deal with people like that so if that's a planner that starts to hit you up and wants to work with you more, but you had such a terrible experience with them. Like you guys are in the position to say no. I mean, that's the thing. You guys are shooting so many events, one less event from a planner that's going to make your life miserable. 
is totally fine to skip out on. Like for me, I'm pretty much going to deal with anything at this point because I'm shooting such a limited number of events that, you know, I, I need a paycheck. So I'll, I'll put up with, you know, a little more than I usually would. But when you guys are booking so consistently, one less wedding from a planner that's going to stress you out is totally fine because, you know, no amount of a terrible wedding day is worth 5,000 bucks. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. Especially when you guys can go out there and book another one five days later. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you rarely get nightmare vendors, at least apart from the videographer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not really. I mean, we still run into like, you know, hair and makeup's running an hour late. Like we still run into shit at the higher end for sure. Like in fact, probably more so, but, but again, the beauty of the vendors who are working there is that when things go wrong on a luxury wedding, every vendor there is a professional and has so much experience they know how to work around it so that's the one thing you'll notice too is that you know things go wrong at every single wedding ever like no wedding has ever run perfectly and so but the difference between you know a fifty thousand dollar wedding and a five hundred thousand dollar wedding is that the vendors that are working that higher end wedding are mentally prepared to handle anything and so that's the thing you'll notice the biggest difference on is that when things go wrong it gets fixed way faster and with way less stress than when things go wrong at like a lower to middle end wedding. That's a good point. Okay. Now I feel better. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta get, you gotta get through the crap to get to the top. So it's, yeah. uh, it, it's fine. Yeah, and listen, I'll still run into that every once in a while, but you just kind of learn to, to adjust. You learn to change your disposition to exactly. kind of blend in with the other vendors and, kind of just kind of plow through it i think i think that's how you know you're a pro is because you handle these situations like one i've seen people who have like an argument in front of the couple or you know <laughs> yeah. yep nope 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 none of that i mean no, bueno. no my my couples will never see me stressed out even if i'm freaking out inside they will never know ever exactly okay yeah. i have a last question before yeah. i ask you my very last question about uh, <laughs> right. just my last question about pricing because yeah. i feel like everyone wants to know since you're a destination photographer how mm -hmm. do you handle travel fees and great you know, question oh that's a really good question so travel fees can be tricky so when when most people start out or they're trying to get into destination you're going to book like a wedding in cancun or cabo or you know Napa, Sonoma, maybe even Hawaii. Like those are like kind of standard destination locations. The tricky thing you're going to run into is your travel fees as a percentage of the total fee that you're charging. And what I mean by that is for the most part, at least on the photo side, I know for every single wedding, domestic, domestic U S destination wedding, my travel fees are about $2,000. So say I'm shooting a wedding Friday, Saturday. So I fly out Thursday, fly home Sunday, which is pretty typical my flights for two photographers at most is going to run me 500 bucks a piece. So there's a thousand dollars right there. Hotel for two nights going to run me three to $400 rental car for a few days is going to run me a couple hundred bucks, baggage fees, Ubers, food, all that kind of good stuff. Almost every single wedding costs me $2,000 in travel fees. And it doesn't matter if it's a wedding in Napa or if it's a wedding in New York, because for the most part, they're about the same. Some are going to be a little bit cheaper. Some are going to be a little bit more expensive, but let's for estimation purposes, let's say $2,000 on average travel costs. If you're a photographer or video team that charges $4,000 for your package, you're going to go to that couple now and say, okay, great. We charge $4,000 for your wedding weekend. Um, and our travel fees are going to be $2,000. 
For a couple that's looking at a video team that charges $4,000, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow because you're essentially adding 50% on top of your $4,000 now. So they're at $6,000 even, but when they see $4,000 plus $2,000, that's a really high percentage to add right on top. Yeah. Whereas if you're charging $10,000 and your travel fees are still $2,000, you're now only adding you know 20% versus 50 when you're charging 16 or 20 grand and your travel fees are $2,000, you're only adding 10 to 15% on top. So those percentages are really tough for clients to swallow when they see that it's such a big addition on top of what you're already charging. So, you know, early on, I think the better way to do it is just include your pricing in the fee that you're quoting instead of, you know, here's my fee plus travel. It's a lot easier for people to swallow one number than one number plus, plus, plus. And so I think when people start getting destination inquiries, I think it's better off to say, hey, I'd love to provide you a custom quote. Um, let's talk about what you need for the weekend. I'm just gonna give you one price that includes all of our travel. You don't have to worry about a thing. Um, I think that's a lot easier for somebody to swallow. I think I think it's easier for a client to see a $6,000 total price than 4,000 plus 2,000. Because then all they're going to do is look at that and be like, well, man, if we weren't paying for that travel, we could hire somebody locally for 4000 And it's a very subtle, like they may not even realize that they're making those decisions, but psychologically, that's what's happening when they see that extra plus, plus, plus on top. And that's why even my high-end destination clients, I, I very rarely now quote travel fees because I just include it in the price so they don't even have to see it. Um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind too is what I do now, the travel fees I include are going to be all transportation. So flights, rental car, Ubers, whatever, uh, baggage fees, all that kind of good stuff. All of that's just included. The only thing I don't include is accommodations because when you start shooting at some of these places, like I have a wedding in uh, up in Monterey at Pebble Beach later this year. And I kind of screwed up because I booked this wedding like two years ago. And at the time I included all travel fees. And then I kind of just never got around to booking a hotel and I never really fully looked to see how much hotels are, but in Pebble beach, they're incredibly expensive. Uh, really? And so I kind of got screwed because I'm having to pay so much more because I included that in my travel costs. So now every contract I write includes all travel except for accommodations. And it's a lot easier for me to say to that client now, Hey, listen, this includes everything. You guys just need to get us a hotel room because all these clients have room blocks at two or three hotels. So it's easier for them to absorb me into their room block and just give me one of their rooms that they've already paid for than for me to scramble at the last minute and try and find a hotel in a destination venue that may not have that many accommodation options. Man, beautifully said. That's amazing. Cause that's exactly what we do too. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the way to do it. Cause otherwise you get stuck in a motel six and nobody wants that. Yeah. Okay. So now I, feel like this is going to be my last question. Yeah. I know we've talked about marketing, networking with higher end planners, right? For, to enter the luxury market. Are there any other strategies that you've done or know of to be able to get into the destination high end market? Um, no, <laughs> I wish. I wish there was an easier way to do it. But at the end of the day, I can equate every wedding I've booked in the last three years to a relationship that I've built with someone in that space. And so, you know, but it's also taken me four or five years to build those relationships and to meet the right people and to go to the right conferences. And so, you know, I think, I think as wedding vendors in today's wedding space, everyone is 
too antsy to like have a shortcut or get there right away or, you know, whatever it may be. I, I think in reality, people need to be a little more patient in, in how they build those relationships because there's nothing worse than playing like a used car salesman when you meet someone who's above your category and saying, here's my business card. Here, here's, here's some of my work. Do you want to see my photos right now? Like, don't do that. No one wants to be bothered like that. And people do it all the time. I see it all the time. And so, you know, long-term lasting relationships are built over a long period of time. And so, you know, I, I would suggest if you've got, you know, if you're a photo or video or, you know, any vendor category, if you've got somebody who you're like, wow, I would love to do a wedding at that venue, or I would love to do a wedding with that planner, take your time and like do some good stocking on Instagram and online, like go follow them. You know, don't leave generic comments on their posts, leave like, you know, thoughtful, sincere comments, drop them a random DM every once in a while on their stories and just comment about something you liked that you saw you know, that's the easiest way these days to at least get on someone's radar because you never know. Somebody at the high end may be working or maybe designing a charity event. They have a thousand dollar budget for a full night. Their regular photographers and video teams are not going to do it for that price. But for you to get in on the ground with one of these planners, that's that's your interview. Like, you know, these vendors aren't going to refer you until they've worked with you. That's that's my biggest takeaway from everything is that you know, the people who are going to refer you to these high end weddings, they will not refer you until they've worked with you. And so it's kind of the chicken or the egg. Like, how are you going to work with them if they're not referring you weddings? But if they're not referring you weddings, how are you going to work with them? And so the easiest way to do that is shoot something for totally free. And you don't have to come out right and say, hey, I'll do anything for free, but be like, hey, you know, next time one of your kids is having a birthday party, I would love to come out and I'll just photograph it for you. It's on me. I would just love to, you know, kind of kind of work with you. Or next time you have a charity event, let me know, you know, I have a few charities that I support and, and, and work pro bono for every year and I'm looking for a couple new ones. So if you have any charity events that you need coverage for, let me know. Um, you're really just looking for any way to get an interview with that particular vendor. And so, you know, I think just getting, getting to know them online and constantly kind of putting out little feelers here and there, just so they know you're around and that you're watching, they're going to look at your work eventually. And if, if your work seems to be a good fit for their clients, you never know what kind of auxiliary event they may be able to bring you in on. That's going to kind of open that door for you to work together. Perfect. Okay. Here's my last question. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I just realized that you know we've been in this market for at least a couple of years and i, I really enjoy it yeah but i mean how are they going to find out when it's time to level up their company like not necessarily go to the higher end markets mm -hmm. but how is there like a something that we need to wait for 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 us to be able to be like, okay, you know what? I think it's time to raise the prices or I think it's sure. time to market to a different. Sure. That's a great question. So my, my thought on kind of going to the next level, I mean, realistically, everyone wants to charge more. Like that's, that's across the board. Like you're, if you ask that in a room of 200 people, no one's going to be like, no, I don't want to make more money. So the constant battle is like, when can I raise my rates? When can I raise my rates? And for me, at least over the last 10 years, I base my, my rates, my, when I raise my rates, I base that on my booking percentage, not how many inquiries I'm booking, but how many of those inquiries I am booking. So if, if you're a photographer or a videographer and you're booking 90% of your inquiries, you're not charging enough. That's a really, really high. Like if, if you've got, you know, in a week, you've got 
10 inquiries that come in and you book nine of them, that's never good. That means you're leaving money on the table because none of those people are arguing with you. They're not bargaining with you. They're like, oh, well, here's this price. Great. Let's just book it. That means you're charging too little. If your booking percentage is 5%, that means you're charging too much or you're, <laughs> or you're in the luxury market. Um, because if you're only booking 5%, that just means your rates are so high that the majority of people for the most part are not booking you. There may be other reasons they're not booking you. It could be because of style or their planner pushed someone else or whatever it is. But if you're, if you're booking 5% of your inquiries, you're charging too much. You know, I think a good rate is anywhere from like 30 to 50% means you're kind of right in that sweet spot. Um, but if you're booking over 60, 70, 80, 90% of the inquiries that come in, you can raise those rates. And the other thing I, I, I consult with photographers specifically on is, okay, great. My booking percentages are pretty solid. Like they're at 80%, they're at 90%. When should I raise my rates? I always look at it this way too, is because everyone's afraid to raise their rates because they worry that people will not book them. Right. Yeah. That's always the big fear. Like, Oh, if I raise my rates, no one's going to book me anymore. You're like, going to oh alienate your market. It, it, exactly. That's exactly it. And this is the argument that every person internalizes as a, as a reason not to raise their rates. The way I look at it is, okay, so let's take your 2019 season. Say you want to do 20 weddings at five grand. Actually, let's say 30 weddings. You want to do 30 weddings at five grand. You've already got like eight or nine booked. You're not, you're not quite yet to 30. The way I look at it is say you raise your rates. What's the worst case scenario that no one books you that like, say you raise your rates a thousand bucks and not a single person books you. That's the worst case scenario. There's no way that's going to happen, but like I always like playing worst case. So say, okay, great. I raise my rates a thousand bucks. No one books me. Can you survive off of 50% of your bookings for the year? So say you wanted to book 30 weddings at at five grand, once you hit 15 weddings, that's half your year right there. You've made, you know, X amount of money. Could you survive on that 15 weddings at five grand? Could you literally like survive the year with that income? Because again, that's the worst case scenario. So I say when you hit that 50%, when you've booked half of your weddings that you want and you can survive off that in the worst case that no one ever books you again, then you can raise your rates. And inevitably what happens is when people hit that 15 weddings, they raise their rate a thousand dollars and they book two more weddings the next week, they're like, shit, I should have raised my rates three months ago. Yeah. But if nothing else, you know that you can survive on the income that you've already booked for the whole year. If you make, I, I call it like when, when you've made the nut for the year and you can survive on that, then raise your rates. Okay. People need to understand that you need to know the cost of everything in your business. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's the basics for sure. Like, and a lot of people don't pay any attention to what it actually costs them or how, what their profit margins actually are. Yeah. Before my wife joined us in the company, she, it was, it was like, it was chaos here in the office. And then she joined, she picked up all the paper on the floor, put mm -hmm. it in shelves and <laughs> she did, she did the math and she showed me, Hey, you're only making $98 for this wedding. <laughs> and I was floored and she was telling us we need to raise our prices because blah, blah, blah. And we were so nervous because we're like, oh my gosh, we're not going to get any bookings anymore. And you know, when we raised our prices, people were still there and Absolutely. they were still willing. Absolutely. And you know, and I think the other thing to keep in mind too, is that, you know, say you're going to make up like a significant jump in your price and you're really trying to like 
break through that like middle ground barrier and you want to charge eight grand or you want to charge 10 grand, a lot of people will just raise their rates, but not do anything else besides that. And I think that's a major problem because especially as you start to move into higher and higher things, like we had spoken about earlier, when you move into that next bracket of like price range, you also can't depend on your past brides and past couples to bring you clients in that new price range. And so it's not enough to just say, okay, great. I hit my 50% for the year. I'm going to raise my rates $2,500. I'm now charging 7,500. Let's see if the phone rings and I book any, you also have to elevate, like it's not enough to just raise your rates. You also have to elevate the partners and your referral sources along with it. So those have to coincide completely because if you just raise your rates, sure. Some people are going to book you, but you're not going to get nearly the same kind of growth. And you're still going to get a lot of pushback from those people who came to you and said, Hey, can I get that price in from five years ago? <laughs> yeah. So it's not enough to just raise your rates when you're ready. You also really, really have to look at where your referrals are coming from and elevate your referral sources in conjunction with your rates. Yes. Just like what Warren Buffett said. I think it was Warren Buffett who said this. He said, price is what your customers pay. Value is what they get from you. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly I, it. I knew we'd have a great conversation, but <laughs> I didn't know that you'd be really honest and open and I really appreciate that, Brian. Of course, of course, always, absolutely. So I would love it if you tell the listeners where they could find you and if you have anything coming up soon. Yeah, absolutely. So I think these days, honestly, Instagram is the best place to find me. I'm at Brian Leahy Photo, and it's L-E-A-H-Y, uh, at Brian Leahy Photo. Honestly, like for any of the listeners listening in, I love chatting business. I could do this all day. Uh, so drop me a DM on Instagram. Find me on Facebook. My website's brianleahyphoto.com. Um, I will be at the Engage Conference in the Bahamas in June, hopefully speaking. Still waiting to get word on that. Uh, otherwise, they can pretty much find me anywhere in the country. I'm in like seven cities in the next eight weeks. So I'm kind of all over the place. But I love meeting photographers. I, I really do love meeting videographers uh, or anyone else listening. So feel free to drop me a line. I'm, I'm always around. You're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. This is great. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you and um, for making time to speak to us and sharing your knowledge for free. I can't believe it's free. <laughs> I'm absolutely certain that the listeners appreciate it. I, I couldn't be happier to, to bring them the top-notch people in the industry. Well, I appreciate you having me on. So, yeah, I hope they pick up a few things. Good luck, my friend, and all the best. Thank you so much. Leveling up is the best, scariest thing you could do with your business. It doesn't need to be a drastic change, just enough to get you out of your comfort zone. So next time you're wondering why you're not getting the work that you want, always remember, with charging more, you need to add more value. Oh, don't you just love it when people are willing to share what they know and ask nothing in return? Me too! That's why I pay it forward. When I think that I'm not capable of doing this kind of selfless work, I just support the person monetarily. If you're thinking, wow, Paul is so handsome and he sure helped me out by bringing all this information literally straight to my doorstep, I wonder if there's any way I could support him other than cheering him on quietly in my car every week. Lucky for you, I started a Patreon page and you could pledge as low as $1 to show your support and keep the show going. Just head on to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n slash wedding video boss. You'll see the same sweet old podcast and more.
actually tons more. Different tiers could get you great things like transcripts of all the latest episodes. This is for people who don't have time to listen for an hour. There's also a Facebook mastermind group that's limited to a number of patrons. And my personal favorite, extra episodes just for the hardcore fans. But if you want to continue this silent support, I'm throwing all these information goldens for free, so I'd really appreciate it if you help me out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review. Thank you so much to those who already did it. Thanks so much for listening. It means the world to me. Watch out for the next episode of the Wedding Video Boss podcast. Till then, play nice if you can't win. Be nice, especially if you're good looking. Boss man out. Boss man out.